What's going on, guys? Welcome to The Control Room. I'm your host, Israel Johannes, and let me tell you what I do. I'm an associate producer at Valley Sports Southwest, Oklahoma, and New Orleans. My job is to be a graphics associate producer, and so that means that I build out, I build out graphics and I research stats for all of our NBA teams. Last season, I was assigned to the Dallas Mavericks, and so I handled our graphics for almost every pregame, halftime, and postgame show that came out of our studio, which means I have a lot of stats just sitting around on my computer. The stats that you do see are normally relevant to the game, relevant to certain players, a story that the producer wants to tell. And so other, other stats that may not be usable, but we can get back to at certain points during the season, we hang on to. And so I've got a plethora of stats that I want to go through from the last season for the Mavs. Um, so let's talk about how these stats are found. We use Sport Radar as our primary source of statistics, um, but we also have access to NBA.com, um, and we can use multiple databases if necessary, but those are our, our big two. Um, we also have access to NBA's product, NBA Courtside, um, and so that provides in-game, real-time um, stats, changes to the game. Um, we can also look at every other game in the league, um, it provides certain stats in terms of assists, you know, who, uh, how many field goals are scored off of somebody's assists. So for someone like Luca, if he just has 15 assists, we know how many of them go to Kyrie or go to someone else. Um, but primarily when we want to look at history, we need uh, software that can go back that far. And so we tend to use sport radar as our primary source. Um, which means that there's so many custom op uh, options that I can use to figure out, okay, how far back can we stretch this? And even Sport Radar will tell you it can't go it can't go back that far because the NBA didn't record it that far back. So there will be some where I say, you know, in franchise history, but it clearly didn't go all the way back to the franchise. Um, so th for me, um, finding stats is fun. So I just, I just love, I just love doing this job. Um, my favorite thing in the world. So let's talk about the dynamic in the control room. So a producer is going to give me a graphic sheet at the beginning of the day. And he or she will tell me, okay, this is what I want in terms of how we're making this show, especially for a pregame. That's well-constructed. It's well-built. Um, there's a lot of time, uh, quote unquote, a lot of time to um, figure out what is relevant enough to talk about from the previous game going into the next game. Um, and what I will do is take everything that is given to me and then I'll determine, okay, what's the best style to display these statistics? And they'll say what they want. If they want it to cover the screen, make it a full screen, if, it, if they want it to be a lower third, if they want it to be some kind of slab to the left, slab to the right, over certain shots, maybe we have some tape that are uh, EVS um, or our tape associate producer puts together. That way we can combine two things at once. Um, but generally they'll give me 
a structure and then I'll be able to figure out, okay, this is how we're going to do it. And it's also over time you get to learn your producer and figure out what they like more than others. So that way when you start putting things together, they're not really surprised. Um, so that's the dynamic. Mainly, you know, most producers will give you some sort of leeway in terms of you know how you want it to be titled, um, or if a cert if there is a better stat that's out there, they're open to figuring out how to implement it in the graphic. Maybe replace one of theirs altogether, or you two can talk it out and say, you know what, maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, but generally, a pregame is pretty well constructed and everything's already good to go. Um, and then halftime is just reacting to the half, pulling out your stats. Like you'll get mostly courtside. Um, the Mavs are subscribed to this thing called Hoops OMG, and so we tend to use that as well. Um, and that will get us our stats really, really quickly in-game. Um, that way we can fill out the graphics in real time because we only have a couple minutes from the end of the first half to the time we hit the air. Um, and then after the halftime, then the post game, it's a reaction to everything. Um, so we're corralling every statistic we possibly can, trying to see how far back we can relate it to in terms of, you know, a certain player or a certain franchise, all that stuff. And um, then there is a dynamic not only between what we do in the studio, but also how the game gets broadcasted to you. And for us, we in the studio and those who broadcast the game, they, uh, they are normally two different locations. Us in the studio, we are in, da- we are in Dallas. And then for the Mavs, the truck, when they're at home, is in Dallas, but in the American Airlines Center and not within our actual studio building. So we're in two different places, and then there's a third uh, location that we call Master Control. And the three people that are mainly in communication to make sure that the broadcast is running smoothly, normally it would, it would be the graphics associate producer who takes that role. Um, sometimes it can be the producer by themselves, um, but for what we're doing, most of our producers tend to just give us that responsibility. So we'll take on um, sponsorships as well and communicate that with master control. Um, and there will be a segment for studio shows, pregame, postgame, and then throughout the game. So halftime is also considered um, part of the game broadcast, but it would be my job to make sure that those halftime sponsors are there. So there's one of me in the studio for the, uh, for the Mavericks as of last season. There's one in the truck. And so that associate producer and I will be in communication, making sure that we're both on the same line. And then Master Control will speak to the both of us and make sure that they let us know when we're about to go on the air. Um, we confirm how long our commercial breaks are. Um, that way, whenever it's we're getting close to airtime again, the whole environment knows for me, the control room and for the other associate producer, the truck um, to make sure that everyone is good to go. And that by the time that we count down to zero, um, the source that you see is the correct one. Um, and so if there's any failure in communication, then you won't see the right thing. And that's not a good thing. 
uh, for the most part, tends to work out. If you don't notice anything, that means we're doing our job right. So let's talk about um, figuring out what's worth mentioning, right? Because not every stat tells a story. It's been... There's a lot of public perception about media in general, and it's and it's warranted because there is an objective to bring in as many viewers as possible, and you only have a finite amount of time to do that. So how do you do that, right? Sometimes for some people, it tends to create controversy, bring in negative energy for some reason. That's just what attracts. Um, but the best kinds of shows are the ones that can get you valuable information and still present it in a, in an entertaining manner without, without being so negative, right? Um, however, criticism and negativity are are two different things as long as it's, as long as it is constructive. So there are about, let's see, I got seven different things that I want to talk about when it comes to the Mavs from last season. They're rebounding, they're three-point shooting, free throw percentage, second chance points, points in the paint, fast break points, and their clutch games. And all of these different factors um, contributed to their 38-42 and 42 record last season where they found themselves out of the play-in um, falling to that uh, tenth spot in the NBA draft, um, so there's a there were a lot of expectations going into last season, considering we were coming off of Jason Kidd's first season with the Mavs, and they made the Western Conference Finals, lost in five games to the Golden State Warriors. Um, but there were there were a number of issues that happened in terms of health um, scheme. Uh, we had a big trade in the middle for Kyrie Irving and it was, and then both he and Luca missed games due to injury. And so the chemistry just wasn't 100% there, but for, you know, from the jump, whenever they both were on the floor, they were figuring, trying to figure things out and doing so in a way that complemented each other. Um, but it's our job to figure out how to tell you that with numbers um, and make sure that it's relevant while also showing the tape. Now, I don't have any rights to NBA video, so I obviously can't show you tape. So this is as close as I'm going to get um, to, you know, quote-unquote insider knowledge of um, how this is put together just because of the access that I have to uh, stats that go way back in time. Um, so let's go through the first of the seven, which is their rebounding. And for me, I mean, I think it was evident early on that we all knew the Mavs were not a good rebounding team last season. Um, but here's some historical context. They were out-rebounded in 64 of their 82 games. And in those games, they went 25 and 39. That's <laughs> the uh their 64 games out rebounded out rebounded was uh were nine more nine more than the next most which was brooklyn at 55 
who traded Kevin Durant in the middle of the season to Phoenix after trading Kyrie to Dallas um, and right before the trade deadline. So they had a whole roster shakeup that was part of um, this number. However, Brooklyn had not been a good rebounding team going into the trade deadline. Um, they just... It was still outrageous as to how many times the Mavs would get out-rebounded um, over and over and over. However, in th- at the beginning of the season, their first eight games when they were out-rebounded, they were 6-2. and two. So they found ways to win despite doing the last step of defending. As analysts will tell you, people who've played the game, who will forget more basketball than I'll ever know. Um, they'll tell you rebounding is the last step to defense. So if you can't secure a rebound, they're going to get another chance at a bucket. Eventually, it'll, it'll go in, and you just can't stop teams that, <laughs> that can just score on you if you just can't get a rebound, right? Um, so when it comes to franchise history, it ties their second most games out rebounded in franchise history. Um, and the, the, <laughs> this is, here we go. This stat can only be recorded back to 1984, um, 1984, 1985. Um, so it, obviously the Mavericks history goes before that. It, they started in 1980. That was their first season in, in the NBA as an expansion franchise. Um, but since this stat was recorded in 1984, 1985, that's how far back that sport radar will tell me this will go. Um, it's the, uh, the 64 games out-rebounded are the most since 1990-2000 for the Mavs, where for them it was 67 games, but a 32-35 and 35 record. Um, and then for the aspirations that this Mavericks team had, they wanted to make the playoffs. At one point, they were as high as third or fourth uh, in the West. Um, so let's look at the most games played went out rebounded for a Mavericks playoff team, right? That's 51, surprisingly, in uh, 2015, 2016. And they went 23 and 28 in those games. Now, the last three records I've talked about this past season, 25 and 39 went out rebounded, um, 99, 2000, 32 and 35, 2015, 2016, 23 and 28. They're all under 500. And so that that is more evident as you look through the seasons of, you know, how many times they've been out rebounded for more than half the season. You tend to have a losing record because rebounding is key to winning games. It can help you ice games at the very end. It leads to free throws in clutch time. Um, It helps you secure your defense. It also allows you to run the fast break right after a rebound, all that stuff. And so it's pivotal to winning games. Um, and we will get to how that all connects, uh, later. Um, but there are very few anomalies, at least in Mavericks franchise history in 0203, that offensive juggernaut 0203, uh, there were 50 games played when they were out rebounded, um, which was tied second most tied for the second most, um, for all of the Dallas playoff teams. And 
their record was 32 and 18. There are very few things that can help you overcome the fact that you're not rebounding. But they did it so well that season that clearly it didn't matter. They were one of the best teams in the West that season. Um, and then in 2009, 2010, they had, they had it dropped to 44 games out rebounded. Um, and they went 28 and 16, which was their second best win percentage for a Mavs playoff team. Um, but it wasn't good enough, right? Because it was another year of a first round exit. They needed some kind of boost at the center position on the defensive end. So they went out and got Tyson Chandler. And then very next season, they were out-rebounded for only 31 games where they went 17 and 14. So not only did they get out-rebounded less, um, but they also won more games when they were out-rebounded and, and found ways to win despite that disadvantage um, in those 31 games. And that led to them getting the third spot in the West, eventually winning the championship that year and just going on one of those craziest runs we've ever seen in the NBA. Um, so their win percentage this past season, 25 and 39, um, was ranked 20th in their win percentage among all MAF seasons since 1984 and 1985. Um, and that's, that's 39 seasons. So it's 20th out of 39 which is not great and it's an issue that they need to fix, right? So they've tried to address that through the draft, through free agency. It's one of the biggest points of contention and it was something that I had been following all season long in terms of how often are we getting out-rebounded? What are we doing in the place of those uh, missed rebounds? And let's go through at least what contributed mainly to some of these rebounding issues besides just the overall roster construction. Um, Dorian Finney-Smith missed time, which was unheard of because for him, he was like the Iron Man of the Mavericks. He was not known for missing games at all. So for him to be out for an extended period of time made the defense suffer because he was, he was our best, our best. He was the Mavericks best perimeter defender. Um, but then Maxi Kleba tore his hamstring um, around mid-December. And so now you're out two big guys, two perimeter defenders, two stretch players who can shoot the three. Um, and you're now putting Christian Wood and Dwight Powell in a situation where they basically have to rebound and play defense and be the five. And that might have been more of Dwight Powell's game in terms of being closer in the paint. Christian Wood was more of a shooter. Um, he, would, he would get to the basket, Sometimes he'd convert. There were other times where he'd lose the ball. Um, but all in all, I mean, Christian Wood was a good offensive weapon. He was their third leading, I think their third leading scorer throughout the season. Um, and he was effective when he was used correctly. He was very effective when used correctly. And throughout that early stretch where he just, where the Mavs went on a seven game win streak, albeit it was against teams that were not very good. Um, Christian Wood showed defensive flashes where he basically had a streak of one or two blocks a game uh, for seven, eight straight games. Um, led to that double overtime win against the Lakers um, throughout that stretch. So there were there were flashes of 
you know, good defensive capability from these guys, but over time it wasn't going to be sustainable um, because you just needed a bigger presence. Um, and our, our, keep saying our, that's not what we do um, in, in our line of work. But for the Mavericks, um, JaVale McGee was brought in as a free agent. And from the get-go, it just, something just didn't click which which is kind of odd considering how well he played for the Lakers and for the Warriors and for the Suns um, between his Dallas stints. But considering the money that he was given and the promise that he was going to be a starter, it just didn't pan out. Um, and he didn't... Statistically, there wasn't as much effectiveness until l- late in the season. Um, but there was just... There was just infrequent usage of JaVale. Um, and the, all of those situations where you have a lack of depth at center, um, you're dealing with injuries at power forward. Um, you're using guys that tend to be a bit more out in the perimeter or in the pick and roll, uh, such as Dwight Powell, who statistically is the best pick and roll center that the Mavericks have as of right now. Um, so there were just things that they had to fix, right? And let's look through the successful rebounding teams in terms of being out-rebounded. The team with the least amount of games out-rebounded was New York, the New York Knicks. Number two was Milwaukee. Tied for third were Memphis and Houston. And Memphis was just on another level when it came to rebounding, having Jaron Jackson Jr. as your center having Brandon Clark, Xavier Tillman, Steven Adams for a majority of the season. Uh, they were they were out-rebounding opponents like it was nothing. There, were, there was a time in the season where the Mavs probably had at least 20 games out-rebounded and Memphis only had three. It, it was insane. So for them, it was, a, it was a focal point of how they play defense, how they get out and run the fast break. Um, and then in fifth was Denver, the Denver Nuggets reigning champion defending, uh, reigning champion Denver Nuggets. All of those teams were under 30 games played out rebounded. And of those five, only Houston missed the playoffs. So if we look at all this evidence to suggest that rebounding tends to help you win games, which helps you get into the playoffs, which can help you go on a deep run, um, you know, then for the Mavericks, that's their next point of contention. Let's figure out, okay, how are we going to rebound better? How are we going to play defense better? How can we address that? So they turn to the draft. And with the number 12 pick, um, they got Derek Lively, the second out of Duke, who ranked 19th in the ACC in rebounds per game um, at 5.4. He was 10th in all of Division I NCAA, in blocks per game at 2.41 and was second in the ACC. And he was seventh in the ACC in field goal percentage at 65.8%. So a really good player right at the rim. If you've seen him this preseason, he can basically catch any alley-oop. He's another defensive presence. 
obviously the college game and the NBA game are different. Um, but after he learns how to adjust the same way Jaden Hardy did last season, he'll probably figure out that you don't have to, and just because you're a rookie doesn't mean that you can't be effective on the defensive end. We saw Walker Kessler go nuts for Utah last season uh, on the defensive side of the ball. So for Derek Lively, um, he's been compared to a younger Tyson Chandler, which is exactly who the Mavs got going into the 2010-2011 season, as I said before, en route to a championship. Um, for Lively, he could potentially be more of the pick-and-roll center, considering how useful he is on the defensive side of the ball. Um, but he can also get some rest because Dwight Powell can at least use the same method of the pick and roll. He can still do the pick and roll. Um, but I would suggest, I would see more of Derek lively on the court than is expected just because, you know, it's going to take, it's going to take a little bit of time for him to adjust, but I think this will be the right move if they go with lively to start and then uh, we'll see how it plays out. So that's some, that's just something that we'll track as the season goes along. Now, outside of rebounding, here's a philosophy that I'm not sure I still get, but I've talked around, I've talked to some people, um, to some analysts about why do the Mavs shoot the lights out from three and or kill themselves from three. It's 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 almost unbearable to watch when I see how many threes go up and just miss, but it's also ridiculously fun watching them go through the hoop. And there to me seems a lack of balance. So something that I had been looking at was the Mavs three point rate. Um, and generally the rate has been getting higher on average over the last decade. And that's, in part to Steph Curry and you know James Harden, um, and so on and so forth. Damian Lillard, <laughs> logo Lillard, um, but you generally need to be a good three point shooting team to be effective um, at shooting that high of a rate. So for the Mavs, they were shooting at thirty seven point one percent from three, which was eighth in the NBA last season. It's pretty good, top third. Um, however, their three point rate was 48.7% throughout the entirety of last season. That was the highest in the NBA and to have almost half of your shots be from three, I get that it's a numbers game that three is more than two that yes, that's on the surface and mathematically there's not really, um, I, I've tried looking for ways to substitute those missed threes or just three uh, three point attempts to make more efficient offense. And really the only way to do that, to, to increase your scoring is to eliminate quote unquote, stupid threes, um, threes that just don't need to be taken. Um, not necessarily at the end of a shot clock or a half court heave, uh, at the buzzer, but just threes that are more of a bailout, um, and replace them with better offense, a better offensive system, trying to cut to the basket, making it easier 
from the post. Um, utilizing the mid-range, even though you need good mid-range shooters in order for that to work. Um, so it would take, let's say, let's say there are five threes, three, uh, five three-point attempts that are taken down, um, but they would have to be guaranteed misses. And so obviously this doesn't work all the time. Um, but then you guarantee five easy baskets. So five easy twos at the rim or just um, more twos that can lead to free throws, right? You can increase your scoring by about 10 points a game um, just by having five twos go through. Um, and that makes or breaks your your offense at that point. Um, you only have so many possessions, especially at the pace that the Mavs play, where when you shoot that many threes, I mean, that it's it's fine if you have as many possessions as Houston, but the Mavs don't. They play slower, um, especially with Luka on the floor. So their threes need to be a bit more selective. They need to go to shooters who are more effective, um, and they need to create plays where they can get the threes open rather than just, you know, oh, we passed it to a guy who likes shooting threes and he's going to chuck one up. That doesn't always work. Um, That's the concept of living and dying by the three. And too many times I would watch the Mavs die by the three when there were more effective options out there, especially in a tight game. And so there, there are, there might need to be an, (laughs) shift in the mindset Jason Kidd started talking about that near the near the very end of the season where initially he would say you know hey let it fly uh eventually they're going to start going in you've put the work in just keep making those threes but once it got into crunch time and there was no margin for error he started he started saying at some point if the threes aren't going in find an easier shot Right, just get to the basket, get a two. Sometimes two is better than nothing, right? So, I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, but you know, if that's true at the end of the season in crunch time, then that's true throughout the entirety of the season. And so, I don't think that the that the Mavs have to live and die by the three. I, the comparison was made to the um, to that 2017 2018 Houston Rockets team that had James Harden and Chris Paul um, that had. Golden State on the brink. And they had and then the Houston Rockets had game 7 at home. And they took what <laughs> they went I forget the numbers still but it, something like 1 for 27 they had a stretch of 1 for 27 from 3. It was so horrendous at how much they were willing to die by the 3 despite their scoring prowess on that roster. Um but you know they didn't they didn't make it to the finals despite having that advantage and the threes were basically the reason why because it can all be pinpointed down to that one game so a comparison to that team at least for me would suggest that's something that should be pivoted away from rather than being embraced um, but again i'm just looking at it through through a statistical lens clearly players will have a different feel if they if they know that they can make that many threes, they're gonna shoot that many threes. That's just that's just how you are when you're competitive. So I get it. Um, the Mavs just have to find ways to be more effective from outside the arc. 
Um, so here's another important stat to be aware of. Their two-point field goal percentage, so everything inside the arc, was at 57.4%, which was the third best in the NBA last season. And that's really why I'm driving this point home, is that if the threes aren't working, you're proven to shoot well from two. It's not like you have shot poorly from three and you can't score inside the basket. You can score effectively at the basket. And so the lack of offense to get there or just the the will to at least drive to the basket, to cut to the basket, to, to give yourself an easier basket, um, those can really change the way um, that you play. It can help you win more games, all that stuff, right? Um, as we get further down this list, it will start to connect even more how all of these stats really tie into each other, why they're, why they are so connected. Um, so considering how effective they are from two, the Mavs should utilize it more. Obviously they brought in better shooters. We'll get to their additions in a, in a minute. Um, but for, for me, I want to see more effective offense inside the arc, really in the paint area because they, they, they were, a team that was not willing to shoot from the mid-range. Spencer Dinwiddie was one of their guys outside of Luka who would shoot from the mid-range, and he's no longer here. He's with Brooklyn now. Um, but you have Kyrie who can shoot in the mid-range lethally. So there are options um, available to utilize, maximize the offensive side of the floor. Um, let's go through their subtractions and additions. So at least the most notable so from their subtractions, they traded Reggie Bullock to San Antonio, and then he was waived and then signed by Houston. So Bullock is now with the with the Rockets. And then Christian Wood was not um, given another contract, and so he signed with the Lakers. And JaVale McGee was waived, and then he signed with Sacramento. So those are two bigger men that are now no longer part of our depth. Um, and Reggie Bullock, who would be more of a, who would be the primary, uh, wing defender when Dorian Finney-Smith was out. Um, and he would be another three point option that was available. He was also the Mavs technical free throw shooter. Although I think Kyrie can probably take that role now. Um, but those are three notable guys that were on this roster that, um, at least Two of them contributed significantly throughout the season um, in terms of minutes played. And then um, and then JaVale was a depth option in case we needed a uh, we again, in case the Mavs needed a bigger body on the court. Um, but let's go through the additions that they had. So the biggest story, obviously, they re-signed Kyrie Irving. Um, and now his contract lines up with Luca's, um, in terms of Luca can decide whether to opt in or opt out of his player option at the end of Kyrie's contract. Uh, so that will be an interesting situation to uh, watch unfold after about three years. But everything from now until then is dependent, um, or his decision then is dependent on what happens between now and then, obviously. Um, 
next traded from Boston, Grant Williams. And he's a three-point shooting piece that fits more the philosophy of this three-point Mavs team. If they do want to shoot more threes and shoot them well, shoot them effectively, having guys like Grant Williams, who's a big body, who can be in the paint, he can play bully ball, he can play defense, he can also be out in the wing. I mean, he's like a P.J. Tucker out there. Um, that that asset, especially for someone so young, um, it's it's just a great addition for the Mavs, uh, at least in my opinion. And so watching him work in this offense throughout the season is going to be fun. I just hope that Jason Kidd utilizes him to his maximum potential and that he really blossoms in this offense and in this defense and provides that anchor um, at his position. Now, (laughs) um, Seth Curry was signed as a free agent. This is the third time that the Mavs have had Seth Curry. And for the life of me, I don't know why he was let go either of the first two times. I I don't care what it was for, whether it was a trade, whether it was just not re-signing him. There is no reason for this man to not be on our roster again. Like there should not be an opportunity for him to leave again. That's how good he is as a shooter. And when he left, it was much harder to replicate that kind of shooting. And so to have him back only bolsters the way that the Mavs shoot the ball, especially from three. He is a sharp shooter from three. So it is important to keep him this time. All right, Mark Cuban, you listening? Don't let him go. All right. They re-signed Dwight Powell as well. So he's locked in for another, uh, I believe it's three years, either three or four. It's a $12 million, $12 million contract. Um, and then Markeith Morris was also re-signed. Then Derek Lively, who we talked about prior, um, was drafted 12th by Oklahoma City, and his draft rights were traded to Dallas. Um, and then in a trade with Sacramento, uh, Olivier Maxon Prosper was drafted number 24 overall by Sacramento, and then his draft rights were traded to Dallas. And in that deal, Richon Holmes came to Dallas as well. So <laughs> um, Derek Lively and Omax, as this market is calling him now, um, those two guys will be very fun to watch. Obviously, they're raw. They still got time to, they need time to figure it out as Jaden Hardy did last season, but they are going to be such good pieces for this team going forward. Now let's look at how the way that the Mavs utilize their three-point sharpshooters and how it compares to this upcoming roster. So right now, the Mavs have five players on their roster who shot 38% or better from three, um, and that is tied for the most with Boston. So of those five, um, that's Jaden Hardy, Tim Hardaway Jr., Seth Curry, um, Josh Green, and Grant Williams. (laughs) We haven't even talked about Josh Green. My goodness. Um, Those five players, like they were effective from the three. Uh, I mean, Hardaway had a lot of volume from three. That was evident. I mean, you could just see his bounce. You knew it was going to go up. And there were times where he would just he would kill you and drop 24 on your head. Like it was nothing. Um, what is good for him going up, going into this next season is consistency, uh, rather than having hot and cold streaks, right? You want 
there's there's obviously going to be shooting streaks throughout the season. You can't keep it going for 82 games. But if he has more consistency, um, especially shooting from three, then that will really elevate this Mavs offense to another level. Same thing with Josh Green. But for him, he's more all around and another defensive player as well. And he's young. Um, I believe he was just re-signed yesterday. I'm recording this October 24th. I think he was re-signed yesterday to a new deal with the Mavs. Um, so he's going to be another piece throughout this, throughout these next three years, figuring out, okay, now that Dorian Finney-Smith is not here, you are that guy covering in that role. That's how he played last season um, after that trade. Um, but, you know, having this many options is, you know, just imagine those guys with Luca or Kyrie or both on the floor. There's just the spacing um, is, it's only going to help them, but they need to work obviously on the defensive end as well to make sure that their offense isn't in vain. And then last season, there were 10 games in which the Mavs shot 20 or more threes. And let me rephrase that. They made 20 or more threes. There was a time in the NBA when you didn't even attempt 20, where it, once you hit 20, it was considered too much. These guys made 20 threes 10 or more times. So you can see where the confidence is in terms of how they shoot the three. It's just that it took it took a lot of games to get there. Uh, but when they had those kinds of games, they were effective. They either blew teams out or they came back and won. Um, so again, it's just more of a balance of how to, how to have that type of three-point shooting while also being more effective inside and on the defensive side. Um, and so about that number, the 10 games, it was tied for the third most in the NBA. Golden State had 19 Duh, it's Golden State. Boston had 17, who was a high-volume three-point shooter, uh, shooting team. Um, and it clearly showed in the numbers. Golden State and Boston had basically been neck and neck in terms of three-point shooting in that regard. Um, and then the uh, team that was tied for third with Dallas was Milwaukee at 10. The next most was Sacramento with seven, right? So this doesn't... It's happening more often, but for a specific team, it doesn't happen as often as one might think. Uh, so it is an identity that the Mavs wanted to embrace, um, and they can still utilize the three and you know use their use it to their advantage to um, really bring on a level of scoring that you'd normally only see from guys like Stephen Curry. Um, and so these 10 games were also the second most in a season in franchise history. And the previous most was 11 in 2019-2020, which was Luka Doncic's second season. All right, so now that's if they're playing well from three, right? What if they struggle? How can you make up for missing a lot of threes? Um, besides the, you know, the humorous fact of you know just don't shoot that many threes um for the Mavs it's their free throw shooting number one so before Kyrie started playing for the Mavs uh the Mavs had a 74.6 percent free throw percentage which was 27th in the NBA right um this was despite attempting the second most 
free throws at 26 and a half, only behind Detroit. Um, the league average in terms of percentage and attempts was 78% from the stripe and 23.8 free throw attempts. So they were below average um, in terms of shooting and above average in terms of attempts. They had so many opportunities, and obviously that came from Luka. Uh, he drew so many fouls, went to the line plenty of times, and so he makes up the bulk, uh, not necessarily a majority, but a bulk of those free throw attempts. Um, but they just didn't cash in as often as um, you would expect an NBA team to do. And it cost them plenty of games before Kyrie came through, right? So then when Kyrie first started playing on February 8th, 2023, um, from that point on, they were seven. Uh, they shot 77.8% from the stripe, which was 16th in the NBA in that stretch. Um, they attempted 22.2 free throws per game, uh, which was 19th in the NBA. So they did not really attempt as many um, free throws. They made more, but, or at least they made more of what they shot, but they didn't shoot as many. Um, and so that can be a myriad of, of reasons as to why either they just weren't drawing fouls or they were shooting so many threes that they couldn't draw a foul. Um, or they were just making their twos and that was, that was it. Um, but there, there was a shift in terms of efficiency from the stripe and that's really what needed to improve to, um, help in close games. And so Kyrie being on the floor, I mean, here, here's something that is, uh, is important to know. Luca was shooting 74.2% from the stripe on 10 and a half free throw attempts per game all of last season. Um, generally that's like a LeBron career number. LeBron has normally shot three out of four for his entire career. Luca seems to be the same way. I don't know why it is that there are some good shooters out there um, from that distance who tend to not have a higher free throw percentage. Again, I'm not going to compare. I'm not going to act like I can just make 85% from three or not for, excuse me, not from three, but from, from the, from the free throw stripe from the free throw line um, in an NBA game. That's just not what I do. Um, but based on these numbers, um, you know, for Luca, it was, third out of his five seasons. It wasn't his worst, but, um, and he, he shot probably, I, I believe he shot the most free throw attempts in a season in his career so far. Um, so he's getting, he's getting to the line more often. If he converts more often, he'll have games where he shoots better than 90%, but he'll have games where he shoots below 60. Um, that swing just can't happen when you're the superstar. Um, but as a team, Having those other guys, um, especially Kyrie, can help out. And for Kyrie, he shot 94.7% from the stripe with the Mavs. And in the fourth quarter, boy, 43 for 43. How now? That's clutch. That's clutch, right? 43 for 43 from the stripe in the fourth quarter. It's so nice to have an ace on your roster Um someone you can rely on when the game is on the line or when you need to pull away or when you need to make a comeback. Like having him on the floor helps the Mavs more than it hurts. 
and Kyrie's the king of the fourth quarter. I mean, he scored more points in the fourth quarter than almost anybody, if not anybody, um, throughout all of last season. Um, so, right, there's that way to score. When you're not making your threes, free throws can help you there. Um, there are other options as well, which are second chance points. It's the next point that we're going to get to. That is, um, for the Mavs, they shot, or they made, um, excuse me, they scored 10.9 second chance points per game last season, which was 29th, 29th in the NBA. For those that don't know, there are only 30 teams, which means that it was the second fewest second chance points in the NBA. The league average was 13.6. So it doesn't seem like it's far off, but Again, second chance points, the, the way to get that is to get an offensive rebound. Um, and from what I talked about previously, the Mavs were not great at rebounding. So they didn't have many opportunities to score second chance points, which is mainly why they didn't have so many. Um, their opponents, however, averaged 14 and a half, which was above the league average. Right, so not only were the Mavs not rebounding their own misses or rebounding their opponent's misses, their opponents were rebounding their own misses. Um, and that led to uh, some games where there was a disparity in, in the margin for scoring. Um, there, there were some games decided on a second-chance opportunity. Um, it's just when you have little margins in multiple statistics they start to add up and that's why you have these games where um, you lose by seven points by 10 points by 15 um, you don't always have to lose by one or two and then you know look to one of these stats if you were to clean up all these little all these little things then that can lead to more wins higher seating in the playoffs i'm harping this point over and over and over um, because it's important right so Beyond second chance points, there's also points in the paint. And when you don't have as many big men, this is much harder. Given their injuries to um, Dorian Finney-Smith, Maxi Kleba, and the way, really their offensive philosophy was shooting from three. The, that 48.7% three-point rate contributed, contributed as to why they were not scoring as many points in the paint. Um, they were last in the NBA at 42.8 points in the paint per game. Um, the league average was 50 and a half. So that's a really big margin, right? So Luca tends to use the entire floor, but he will primarily go into the paint um, if he's going to shoot from two outside of, you know, shooting um, nine threes a game or something. Um, but that's that's his kind of game. He, lo he loves to slow down. Um, he's, he's a shifty kind of player. He's... Um, he really fools the defender into thinking he's going to go at a certain speed. And then suddenly he's just, Ooh, he's gone. Right. Like you, you don't expect it as a defender and that's how he's played throughout the entirety of his career. That's part of what makes him so, so good. Um, but other players can also contribute to those paint points and it requires them actually cutting to the basket, utilizing the pick and roll, um, and, and just not missing bunnies. There were, there were just some layups that should have gone in, but obviously it's not always going to go in. But the, if you're wide open and you are an NBA player, which I am not, it should go in. 
Um, that's that's neither here nor there. The Mavs opponents averaged 51.1 paint points, which is only 0.6 higher than the league average. So generally, other teams were getting to that average number against the Mavs throughout the season. But there were stretches where, or maybe not stretches, but there were just some games where you look at how many paint points a team had, and you would think there's no way. Like there's there's no reason to be allowing this many points in the paint. There were three games in last season, three games last season, where the Mavs allowed 70 or more paint points. They lost all three. The last one was an overtime loss to Atlanta, which they could have won, but I mean, it was just the way that other teams can easily score on Dallas in the paint. Um, it leads to acquisitions such as a Derek Lively. Um, you you just can't have that kind of defense at the rim. So they, uh, the Mavs have, a, have somewhat addressed it. It's a matter of can they execute with this roster. Uh, but that is going to be a pain point for this team. How well can they keep their opponents out of the paint? Um, then here's something that doesn't get utilized very often, at least for Dallas. They're fast break points. Now, this is an interesting thing because of the way that it's um, designated. Not every um, not every transition opportunity is considered fast break. Um, it does require getting there at a certain in a certain amount of time. Um, but for the most part, when you see a play going out in transition and they end up going to the basket baseline to baseline, that's going to be your fast break opportunity. And for the Mavs, they only had 11, 11 fast break points per game last season, which was 29th in the NBA. Um, the league average was 14. And the Mavs opponents averaged 13.3 fast break points. Um, something to keep in mind about this is that Dallas's pace was the third slowest throughout the entirety of the season behind Miami and Cleveland. Um, and mainly that comes from Luka and the way he plays. I had said that he's shifty. His speed is deceptive. Um, but when he's not on the floor and Kyrie takes over the offense, they start playing in a way where they really get up and down. And the players that are on that roster also go up and down. And so they kind of fit that style of offense really well. Um, and they adjust to Luka in a way that can make them effective if they utilize more off-ball uh, more off ball screens or just cuts if they don't stand around and wait for Luka to make a play. But when they're going up and down, I mean, that's an easy basket. A fast break point, like if you, to, to start off a fast break opportunity, first you need to rebound. Uh, because you can't really go on the fast break when you've given up a bucket and you have to go back on the baseline, reset, and then and then give it back to your point guard because the defense is already set at that point. So you need to rebound off of a miss from your opponent and then just get up the floor, right? So to have more of those opportunities requires better rebounding. Um, and again, I'm harping on this point over and over. And so the more that I make this point, the more that it should uh, start to uh, be recognized as like, hey, this this is something to 
really watch for because the more that they do this, the more that they'll be successful, right? Um, so they'll they'll you know they'll get up the floor. It requires an easy bucket at the basket. Um, it can also be a transition three. Like if they if they just happen to shoot a three and it goes in, sometimes Kyrie would do that like crazy in the fourth quarter, and those will count as fast break points. Um, there's also an odd designation where if you go on the fast break and you draw a foul, your free throws also count as free throw as a fast break point attempts. Um, I said that weird. If you draw a foul on a fast break opportunity, your free throw points will be counted as fast break points. That's how they get designated. And then over time, like as I look through the logs, um, the game summaries and the play-by-play, um, it will show you know, free throw, fast break points, free throw, fast break points. Um, and so that will add to that total. Uh, but yeah, even if the ball doesn't go in the basket, just drawing a foul is part of that statistic. And so that is a, uh, a reflection of how often you can get up and down the court. Um, and so there were, there were games where the Mavs did have more than 20 fast break points and they had a winning record in those games. Um, just because they were so effective at, at, um, scoring so easily. And it makes up for the fact it makes up for the missed threes. It makes up for some missed free throws when you can get an easy bucket like that. When you play at a much slower pace, you don't have that margin for error because you don't have as many opportunities to score. You also are making it harder for, for your team to, uh, to get the ball in the basket. Um, and so these little things, right there, again, they are starting to add up and they're leading to ways where the Mavs could win, <laughs> win plenty more games than the 38 they did last season. Um, so all of the off-ball cutting, the off-ball screens, um, they lead to assists, right? If the ball is getting shared, um, if the ball can move faster off of a throw, then a defender can move with his feet. Um, so the ideal situation is to pass the ball hot potato, just really make the defense work. The Mavs had 22.9 assists per game, which was tied for 28th in the NBA with the New York Knicks. The league average is 25.3 assists per game. Luka made up a bunch of those, right? He averaged eight assists per game, um, and he was ranked ninth in the NBA in that category. The rest of the team had only 14.9. The rest of the team had only 14.9. It doesn't always have to be Luka. Um, let's also not forget Kyrie adds a good number of assists as well. And so if only Luka and Kyrie are assisting, th- that may help, but you know, you you do want the ball to move. When the ball moves, you'll get easier shots, you'll get more open shots. Um, and, you, and then you can justify some of the attempts um, because they're, they're open. And if they're not going in, then they're just not going in. And then you can, you can make an adjustment later. But as long as they're open you know you're doing something right. Um, and then with their fast break points, uh, this, is the, this is the split for Kyrie. Before Kyrie played with the Mavs, uh, the Mavs had only 9.9 fast break points per game. Um, that was the lowest in the NBA, um, and they were the only team under 10. Once Kyrie was on the floor, they had 13.3, which was the league average throughout, throughout the entirety of the season. Um, Excuse me, 14 was the average across the entirety of the season. 13.3 was um, 
again, the Mavs fast rate points number since Kyrie started playing with the Mavs. It, it was 21st in the NBA. So it was an improvement. Obviously, it did not go all the way to the very top, but it was an improvement. And um, it's something that they can lean on, especially when Luka's not on the floor. They have another gear that they can hit with all those young players, those fast players. Um, and, you know, Luka has been getting in shape. So it's not out of the question that he can also be a little bit faster on the floor. Uh, it's just a matter of how healthy can he be. Currently, he's got a calf issue. Um, so I'm not going to act like I know the report behind whether or not he's going to play in Wednesday's season opener against the Spurs, but I would hope that he would play um, if he is healthy enough to do so. So that will be a fun matchup between him and Victor Wembanyama. Um, now, just because you have a slow pace does not mean that you can't create assists, right? So here's a counter argument that comes from uh, the Denver Nuggets, the reigning champions. The Denver Nuggets had 28.9 assists per game last season, which was second behind Golden State. Um, but they had the seventh slowest pace, right? So Nikola Jokic, the eye test will tell you he's, he's slow, but, I mean, he's big. He can cover so much ground, and his passes are so sharp. They're so quick. They can run at a slower pace, but they're so effective at moving the ball that it's easier for them to score. And Nikola and uh, Jokic is so deadly accurate with his passes that the defender almost has no chance. Um, so it's important to um, it's important to um, figure out, you know. how to replicate that kind of system. Um, and it doesn't mean that Luca has to be as accurate as Nikola, uh, as Nikola Jokic. Um, but, and it also doesn't mean that he has to have as many assists as Nikola, who had 9.8 assists per game, fourth in the NBA, while the rest of his team had 19.1. It's that everyone on the team is sharing the ball. It's not just him that facilitates the offense. Um, at the same time, the Nuggets had a 37.9% three-point field goal percentage, which, um, again, the Mavs had a, um, what was it, a 37.1%. So it's, it's less than a, an entire percentage point higher. Um, but the way that the Nuggets shot from three um, was so effective. It was fourth in the NBA, um, and they were selective with it. So they didn't waste as many opportunities you know, trying to you know, live or die by the three. They had the entire floor to work with. Um, and now for the last point, their clutch games. Dallas Mavericks clutch games, I should say. They were 26 and 29 in clutch games. And clutch uh, clutch time is considered um, a margin of five within the last five minutes of an NBA game. Um, so at any point, if the margin is within five, uh, or f like five or less, 
in the last five minutes of a game, it will always be considered a clutch game, even if the margin starts to fall out. Um, and so for the Mavs, they had 55 clutch games. Um, and that was the most in the NBA. Their 26 wins were the fifth most in the NBA. Their 29 losses were tied for the most in the NBA with Utah, who also was not anywhere in the playoff picture in the West. Um, and they had a 47.3 win percentage, uh, 43.7% win percentage, which was 16th in the NBA, about middle of the pack. Earlier in the season, they were doing a lot better at winning clutch games. But that, that rough stretch um, in March and April really hurt them in clutch games. And that was part, like they lost eight of their last nine clutch games to end the season, including seven straight. So they, they had plenty of opportunities to win games. The, um, there were some of these clutch games where they got to five and then they just never got closer. So it's not those that I'm really talking about, but there are some where, you know, they would, lo- they would lose by one and have the ball. Um, but their option was put Luca under the basket, have him come off of an off-ball screen, pick up the pass at the left corner, really the left wing, and then shoot a three. And for the life of me, I don't know why this play was used so much, considering it did not work as often as I guess, was thought, um, I mean, he's made that shot plenty of times, famously against uh, the Clippers in the bubble um, in game four to tie that series 2-2. Um, but, you know, there are, teams know it now. That play just doesn't work anymore. If you're going to use it, you need to be more deceptive about it. Um, there, there just have to be better options um, in those types of situations where you, you just can't lose clutch games because you're using the same play over and over and the defense knows it. it, it it's not, it's not excuse. It, like it's, it's not acceptable for your own standard, right? If I were in, if I were in those shoes, which again, I will say I am not in their shoes, but to run the same play over and over, if you were to go back to the, um, to the Bucks Mavs game, um, I believe it was early December, they ran this play again, and Luca knew, or at least he looked like he uh, was trying to tell the coaching staff, I think they know this play. And he wasn't actually saying that, but he kind of looked to the bench, um, and he was talking about, uh, he, he wasn't talking about, he was um, cognizant that this was going to be a hard play to execute because they knew what was, the Bucks knew what was coming. And he didn't convert. It was a, it was a really long attempt didn't come close to the basket. Um, and he, he swung his arms in frustration. Uh, so there was, there were moments where throughout the entirety of the season where you're like, you know what? Free throws can really help here. Or, um, an open three can really help here. Or just a cut to the basket, maybe some fast break points, maybe some second chance points. How about a rebound? Like anything could have helped in that situation to get you over the hump. But because of all of those deficiencies, that led them here. Um, and they were in the, on the outside looking in for the entire, uh, for the entire playoff schedule. Um, so the outlook for this upcoming season is that 
they improve on all of these seven points, right? They improve on their rebounding, their three-point shooting, uh, especially their three-point rate, their free-throw shooting, their second-chance points, which comes off the rebounding, their paint points, um, which comes off of their ability to shoot inside, fast-break points just going up and down the court, and their clutch game execution. Fixing all those little things will lead to more success statistically for the Mavs. And that can be the difference between being out of the play in, especially in a tight Western conference, considering how loaded this entire conference is. Um, it can be the difference between being 11th or 12th and being fourth. Um, and so the Mavs have a high ceiling, but it's up to them to execute. And based on what I'd seen last season um, and how they've tried to improve so far, I think they can be a top six team, although they are really going to have to show from the jump that they mean business. Um, and so it will be fun to watch, especially because I'm a Dallas native. I've watched this team my whole life. So it is, um, it's fun for me when a hometown team goes nuts, right? Uh, when they can make the playoffs, when they can really make some noise and go deep in the playoffs, such as a team we'll talk about very briefly at the end of this. Uh, episode. So now let's look around the NBA. Just keep everyone, uh, get everyone up to speed because this is an NBA preview um, and talk about some of the transactions that happened around the league. Um, so just for a recap, the Celtics got another KP and I don't mean Kendrick Perkins. They got Chris Stapps Porzingis um, from Washington in a three-team trade uh, that included Memphis. So Marcus Smart was sent to Memphis, the heart and soul of the Boston Celtics was sent to the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, Washington traded Kristaps Porzingis to Boston, who then opted into his $36 million player option. And that deal went through that day um, because there was a deadline for Porzingis to opt into that uh, final year of his, uh, for that option on his deal. Um, previously, there was there were talks of trying to get Malcolm Brogdon to the Clippers and having a three-team uh, trade with them, but it was um, it ended up being Celtics with Porzingis, um, the Grizzlies with Smart. Um, so, and then um, in this deal, Boston traded Danilo, uh, Danilo Gallinari and Mike Muscala to Washington, and then Memphis traded Tyus Jones to Washington. So now Washington has a point guard that they can add to Kyle Kuzma and that um, and to that offense. Now, there was a wizard who's no longer a wizard, and his name is Bradley Beal. The Suns somehow, someway, picked up Bradley Beal. Um, and there was a... Um, hmm, how, how do I break this down? They traded Chris Paul to Washington, um, and they were able to pick up Bol Bol, Eric Gordon, and Utah Watanabe. And then other assets from this, um, from another trade that they made for De um, trading away DeAndre Ayton. They traded away DeAndre Ayton to the Portland Trailblazers, and then um, that was part of a three-team trade with Milwaukee. And so Milwaukee sent Grayson Allen to Phoenix, and then Portland sent uh, Yusuf Nurkic, Nasir Little, and Keon Johnson to Phoenix. And so that provides depth, which has been a question for the Phoenix Suns, especially after um, how they went down last season, being very top-heavy and losing to a loaded Denver Nuggets team. 
um, in six games. So now Phoenix has a little bit more depth, but they don't, <laughs> they, um, they just don't have that superstar at center. And right now, um, the reports are saying that Bradley Beal is probably not going to play in the season opener um, against the Warriors. So it's just going to be Devin Booker and Kevin Durant out there with the other sons. Um, so I, Frank Vogel is leading this team and he will, he's a bit more defensive minded. So there will still be a, uh, there'll still be an emphasis on scoring, but defensively, I think they'll try to make more effort, especially with the fact that they brought in so much more depth. Um, so for them, they're looking to improve. I'm not really sure if they will improve given given the way that the West is shaking up. Anything is possible, um, but that's how Phoenix is looking right now. Portland, <laughs> I mean, they hit the reset. They drafted Scoot Henderson, um, and uh, they traded Damian Lillard to the Milwaukee Bucks, who's our next topic. Um, and they acquired Drew Holiday in that Milwaukee trade, and then they traded Drew Holiday to Boston. So Boston, who had already gotten Chris Stapps, Porzingis, they picked up another solid defender at the point guard to help them fill the hole that Marcus Smart left behind. So Drew Holiday, I mean, he, most analysts are saying that Boston is now leading Milwaukee as the favorite out of the East. Um, I mean, that's just that's just Drew being Drew. Um, so for for the Celtics, it's a great get. For the Bucks, Dame is a great get. Um, the Trailblazers are going to be really starting fresh with Scoot, with Aiton. Um, that that team, when uh, if they still have Anthony Simons signed to a signed to a deal, um, so offensively they've got some great weapons. They can score a lot. Defensively was where they were having a lot of issues, um, and so for them. I'm not sure where I also am not sure where they're going to end up. This the entire Western conference is weird, weird. Portland started four and O last season. And everyone was like, Oh, okay, that's it. Portland's going to make the playoffs. And then obviously it cooled down after that. And that's what led to this. I'm not really expecting Portland to make a lot of noise. They might be in the play in, but, um, they, they can spoil a lot of games for some teams. Um, and if they really start to collect an identity, and they really start making noise, obviously they're going to be some some team to watch in the upcoming weeks. And so that will be something that can be broken down um, as we get further into the season. Um, this is another interesting trade. Chris Paul, right? Not the first one, the second one. So um, Chris Paul was traded to Golden State in exchange for Jordan Poole. Um, and everyone knows the situation between Jordan Poole and Draymond Green at Golden State. He's starting fresh with Kyle Kuzma and now Tyus Jones as, as his point guard. Um, and Chris Paul is getting to be playing with the Warriors. And with Draymond also being out for the opener, um, Chris Paul is probably going to start um, until Draymond gets back. So the, um, they are that that Golden State lineup is going to be a little small, but. They are a force to be reckoned with. Um, they're not 
they're not a team to mess around with. Last season, they had an inexplicable uh, 50-50 where they just they won as many games at home as they lost on the road. Um, and that, that, I mean, that's surprising to everybody. I don't think it's going to be duplicated. I don't, I don't think that we'd see them going, you know, like losing more than 30 games on the road. But um, for this team, their expectations are high. That, that championship window is not exactly closed. However, it is closing. So they do have to maximize um, what they have. And, you know, we'll see if Chris Paul can get a ring. Um, and then for the free agency bonanza, there were a lot of signings and I'm not going to get to every one of them, but, um, Boston signed Jalen Brown to a five year, $303.7 million supermax extension. The richest contract in NBA history. As of now, if you've noticed, um, I, I remember like between 2016 and, or not, wasn't even 2016. This was when Kevin Durant was still with the Warriors and Stephen Curry resigned in 2018. His contract at 201 million was the richest contract in NBA history. And then the next week, Russell Westbrook got a 205 or 206 million dollar contract, and that was the richest in NBA history. It's now 100 million dollars more, and that's and it's only going to keep doing that. And so the the economy of the league is something that I'm particularly going to be watching, especially because when you're working in sports television, it's part of the revenue that the league makes. And so all this money is interconnected. Um, and given the state of broadcasting in general, um, it's something that we will have to keep looking at in terms of, you know, how, how much is this salary cap going to balloon? Why is it going to keep ballooning? And what are the repercussions if it balloons too far too fast? Um, so as of right now, I mean, the players are enjoying their money. So, hey, get your money. Um, so Draymond Green with the Warriors um, was signed to a four-year, $100 million contract with a player option. In order to sign this deal, he declined his $27.5 million player option in the previous contract. Russell Westbrook um, signed with the Clippers again. Uh, with a, for a two-year, $7.8 million deal with a player option in that second year. Bruce Brown left the Denver Nuggets, uh, the champion Denver Nuggets, to go to the Indiana Pacers, who gave him a two-year, $45 million contract. I mean, you can't fault this, man. Um, there's a team option in this, um, in this deal. Bruce Brown had to decline a $6.8 million player option on his contract with Denver. I mean... We're talking twenty-two and a half million a year on his uh, on his deal as of right now, compared to the six point eight he would have gotten. Obviously, Denver is a better team than Indiana, but hey, you got your title, so Bruce, salute. That's all I can say. Um, Houston signed Dylan Brooks to a four-year, eighty million dollar deal via a sign and trade with Memphis, um, and Milwaukee. As of yes, literally last night, um, extended Giannis for three years, $186 million. And so now he and Dame are locked in for the foreseeable future. So this is really a team to watch in the East besides Boston. Um, and they re-signed Chris Middleton to a three-year $102 million deal. So their core is good, um, or at least their immediate core of their point guard 
their power forward slash center um, and their anchor on the inside, uh, Chris Middleton. So now with all of the player movement, there's been some coaching movement as well. Um, And so there's a lot to break down there too. For Detroit, out goes Dwayne Casey, who is now in the front office with the, with the Pistons. And in comes Monty Williams, who was fired by the Suns. Um, and Monty won the 2021-2022 NBA Coach of the Year. Um, so it's... This was mainly due to just the repeated failures in the second round of the last two years. And because of the sale that Robert Sarver uh, had for Matt Ishbia. Matt Ishbia essentially just let Williams go, brought in Frank Vogel. Um, so that, that's just the nature of this business, which is unfortunate, but Monty is a, he's a good man. I don't know him at all, but um, he's, um, he's going to be a good coach for that young, young team. I mean, they have Cade Cunningham. Last year, they drafted Jaden Ivey, um, and now they got Asar Thompson. So they're, they're uh, really looking to grow with their young players and uh, hopefully this team can actually make some noise in the East in the years to come. Um, Bogdanovich, um, who was a trade asset all of last year is currently out for a month. Um, So they will not have his shooting available early on. Um, So it'll be, I guess, interesting to see how that offense kind of takes shape and then how it, how he gets reacclimated to, a new system um, under Williams for Houston. They let go of Steven Silas um, and he, uh, his contract was over and they just decided not, I, I believe his contract ended and they didn't keep him. And they brought in email Doka from, from Boston. Um, that is a situation that I will not really get into right now. Um, but if we look strictly at basketball, right. Udoka can really help these young guys, especially their um, their first pick, Amen Thompson, Osar's brother, Osar's uh, twin. And with the addition of Dylan Brooks, they they did let go of Kevin Porter Jr. for good reason. Um, they, I don't think that they will make the play in, but they will flirt with the eleven and twelve spot. They will be better than they were last year for sure. Um, having them and Jalen Green um, elevating to the next level. Alperen Shengun is um, is really coming into his own. He's starting to make a name for himself a little bit. But Houston is still Houston. There needs to be structure, and that's what Udoko is going to provide, at least um, from what Houston management is wanting to do. All right, now the Bucks let go of Mike Budenholzer, who won them that 2021 NBA title, although I would have assumed that he would have gotten fired if Kevin Durant's toe was not on the line when he shot that shot in the playoffs, but uh, that's neither here nor there. So in comes Adrian Griffin. Um, he was an assistant with the Raptors, and now he's going to be leading this team that has Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Chris Middleton and so on and so forth. Um, and they have a big task ahead of them because the East is a juggernaut. At least it's very top heavy between them and Boston. Um, so expectations are high. They, uh, they have a short window. Um, Giannis had to basically let them know, Hey, we don't have time for this, but we gotta, we gotta get going. Our window is now and Dame wants to win now. Um, so they are ready to get going. Philadelphia let go of doc rivers. 
um, after missing the conference finals, I believe for the, I mean, they, they've, they've inexplicably missed the conference finals after the 2021 uh, collapse. And then this season, losing their last two games to Boston. Um, but the, um, the Sixers are in an interesting spot. They're in a rough spot, really. Um, they brought in Nick Nurse from Toronto. They're still dealing with the James Harden situation. They don't, they obviously don't know, um, how that, I mean, we don't know how that's going to play out. I'm sure they have some inkling as to what they want to do. Um, but I mean, James Harden didn't even have a media day headshot. We were looking for it as we were setting up for, um, for our set day, um, so that we can start broadcasting NBA shows, NBA graphics. And, uh, <laughs> you just, Harden just wasn't there. So for the Sixers outside of Embiid, it's going to be Tyrese Maxey. And uh, Maxie is a South Garland prospect, which is only about 30 minutes from where I am. Um, the, this kid is something special. And, you know, he's, he's been elevating every season. And I just hope that he takes off and really becomes uh, a star in this league. Um, so he's, he's fun to watch. I, lo- I, love, I love watching his highlights. He's just, he's just great. Um, but the Sixers have, have to figure this out because the time, the clock is ticking. There's no telling how long Embiid will stay. Um, he might be saying what he's saying so that he can get the Giannis kind of treatment. Um, but for, uh, for the reigning MVP, everything, everything rides on getting to where you haven't been before. That's the conference finals. That's the finals. That's the mountaintop. Um, which the 76ers haven't been to a final since 2001 with Allen Iverson. They haven't been uh, a champion since 1983 with Dr. J and uh, Moses Malone. Um, so they have that, that city is ready for success. All right. And then in, uh, we talked about in the Phoenix Suns, Monty Williams is now with Detroit. He's out. Frank Vogel is in. Um, and then in Toronto, obviously Nick Nurse is out because he's with Philadelphia. And they brought in Darko Rajakovic. I don't know if I said that correctly, um, but um, Darko Rajakovic was a, a Grizzlies assistant, and now he's the head coach for Toronto. So there is a lot to um, there's a lot there in terms of the coaching carousel, um, but there's everything in the NBA. Um, isn't as it seems. So <laughs> we've got, um, we've got, we got a lot of changes, including some new rules. Um, load management is addressed in the new CBA. So n- you don't get a postseason award if you don't play as, uh, as many as 65 games. You have to have 65 games under your belt or more in order to win MVP, defensive player of the year, uh, rookie of the year, so on and so forth. Um, and so that will incentivize star players to play more games such as, the two that are happening tonight and then every prime time game going on, uh, from here on out. Um, so this will, this will help the fans. Um, this will also help broadcasting as a whole. And that's something that we, that's a point that we will, um, talk about as we get further along in the season, how it's really all connecting to broadcasting. Um, because there's a certain amount that these networks, including our own, our local network, will pay for 
the rights to broadcast these games. And so that means that in order for the games to be worth watching, the star players have to play. Otherwise, we're burning money, um, even though we're kind of already burning money. But um, for the league as a whole, this will only help. And as there was, um, I think, a study that was released about how load management didn't actually help players in terms of injuries. So if players just don't get hurt more often by and by playing 65 or more games, then it will be better for both the the athletes in terms of getting into a rhythm, especially like for a team like the Clippers going into the playoffs, um, but also for the fans that watch the games at the arenas and for the fans at home who um, want to watch great primetime matchups across the country um, and around the world. Um, so the next new rule is about the coaches challenge. And I'm sure you're thinking, you know, if you lost your, uh, you know, if you had a challenge and you want it, you're like, Hey, where's that challenge? Because it's common sense, right? Well, it just wasn't a thing. And so coaches were pushing for that for years. And now, um, there is a second coaches challenge that will be awarded if the first is successful. Um, and, Naturally, and this is the same way in the NFL, if you win a challenge, you keep your timeout. That will only be true on the first challenge. On the second challenge, your timeout will be gone regardless. So if you don't have a timeout, I don't believe that that second challenge is usable. Um, so coaches will have to adjust to that, new, to that new rule as well. But this at least helps um, the risk-reward ratio in terms of can a coach... Um, challenge a play early in a game where it's obvious that it needs to be overturned and not be penalized for it by not having that challenge in their back pocket at the end of the game. So that's going to only um, help the decision-making for coaches when it comes to that. And, um, you know, for them, (laughs) this is what they wanted. Now they got it. Um, So we'll just see how this plays out. And then something that is on a one-year trial basis is the... um, flopping rule, the quote unquote flopping rule. There's a non unsportsmanlike technical foul that will be called for flopping. Um, that will lead to a free throw. Um, they're just trying it out for a year. I don't know if this will hold up. Um, there, the fine will still be in place. It's not a replacement to the fine, but, um, that's at least that's off the report that I, that I read. Um, so, you know, that <laughs> flopping, um, Need I say more, really? I, I think we get it. All right, and then Victor Wimbanyama, the story of the draft. Number one overall pick by the San Antonio Spurs in the 2023 NBA draft. Played for Metropolitans 92 in France. Um, kid is 7'4", 7'5". I mean, if you've watched his highlights this preseason, there are plays that no human should be capable of making, and yet he's making them. In his first game is against the Dallas Mavericks at home on ESPN. So, I i mean, he's in line for Rookie of the Year. Uh, as long as he stays healthy, there's no stopping this man in terms of in terms of him realizing his potential, at least from a rookie's perspective, right? It's not like they're going to be the best team in the West. It, they might not even make the playoffs, but he's going to be such a pivotal factor in how this team transforms um, in the short term and the long term. Um, however, there are some things that other teams can do to limit Wembenyama, and um, they can test his durability. He has said 
that his stamina is something that he has to work on. He's gained um, some muscle to deal with the bully ball that happens in the paint, um, although it's very difficult to see it. Um, but if you test his stamina, make him tired, really make him work, make him run, can his length overcome all that? More often than not, it does, but over the stretch of a 48-minute game, over 82 games in a season, will he wear down? Um, and so teams will have to figure that out. What, there was um, a video that Bleacher Report released on uh, Mavs practice where uh, Gosh Hamgod had some uh, gigantic pads that were as long as Wemby's arms, right? And so that he was blocking shots with those pads to kind of simulate how it would be trying to go up against a guy who's basically the height of Yao Ming or or almost the height of Yao Ming. Um, But I mean, it's not just his height. It's his shooting. It's his, it's his passing. It's his dribbling. Um, You would think that being that tall means that the ball would be stolen away from you, but he's still so crafty when he gets around, when he gets on the court. Um, So there's a reason he went number one overall. Um, He's my pick for rookie of the year. And uh, teams are going to have a hard time. The Mavs are going to have a tough test in the season opener on Wednesday. Um, Now, all this stuff I talked about, this is something that gets put on a graphic or multiple graphics throughout an entire uh, pregame show. Imagine putting that all together. I mean, for me, it's fun. That's my job. Um, So there's... uh, these graphics don't come on their own. They're not built by the same person who creates the show, directs the show. Like there, there are multiple people in this control room. Um, and I'm just one piece to the puzzle. Um, but all those graphics that you see, at least in a studio show, there's someone out there for that show, uh, who does what I do for Valley sports. Um, and so there are, there's another, human being behind the creation of all that. Um, and that is, uh, something that I just want the audience to keep in mind when everything is being put together. Um, so, you know, if you know someone who happens to work in TV, who happens to do graphics, like, Hey, this is their favorite thing to do, then, uh, you know, give them some support. Like this is, um, information that you, might not have known otherwise considering the access to that, that we have in stats, but, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, where that's how broadcasting gets done. So that will all, that will all be broken down as the season goes along. Um, now let's go through what we'll talk about next week, right? Um, in our next episode, we'll talk about the inaugural in season tournament, that starts November 3rd. Um, the Mavs are in the West B group um, with teams like Denver and New Orleans and Houston um, and the LA Clippers. So how that all is going to play out, how that is structured, that'll be talked about as we get closer to uh, the beginning of that um, stretch. Um, something to keep in mind as well is that um, I am not going to be assigned to the Dallas Mavericks studio shows this season. Um, however, I will be hopping in uh, here and there. So I'll do some Mavs games. I'll do some Pelicans games as well. And then some 
Thunder games. So I'll have those three markets, at least on the studio side, pregame, halftime, and postgame that I'll be building graphics for. You probably, you will definitely not know when it is. Um, and that's, that's part of, that's the job of being behind the scenes. Um, but I will have access to three teams now instead of one to figure out, Hey, how do these teams all play out? And we'll talk more about the Pelicans and the Thunder as those teams start going forward in their season, as well as the maps. Now, before I sign off, let's talk about the Texas Rangers. They are my hometown baseball team and they just made the world series for the first time in 12 years. I was 15 years old and now I'm 27. It's been a long stretch. Um, I had only gotten into baseball around the beginning of high school, which is when they were on those world series runs. Um, but I mean, it's, it's not a game that I grew up with, but I learned to figure out and you know, how, how loved it is by, uh, the community. Um, and it is so fun to watch this team, especially with all of the Rangers broadcasts that we've had on Rangers live, um, on Valley sports Southwest, basically every day, uh, for the last six, for over six months. Um, and, you know, building up stats, um, finding, finding stats and building out graphics for, um, this team's broadcast has been so much fun with how much they've been winning. Um, and it is, it is a joy to watch them make the world series and hopefully they can make some noise and win it all. And, uh, next the Dallas Cowboys, again, this is my hometown. They are my football team that I love to watch. Um, they're four and two and they are coming out of a bye, And so the expectations are high for Dak Prescott, Mike McCarthy and, and company. Um, so as the season goes along, you know, if they make some noise, we'll talk about it. If they don't, well, I might still talk about it. Um, but I will primarily be sticking to the NBA because that is where my, where most of my job is going to be, um, for the next six months. Um, so it will be, less focused on baseball and football, but here and there, there'll be some inklings. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to be talking NBA, talking basketball. So where can you watch the first games of the season? Um, the, the Lakers and the Nuggets will tip off Tuesday, October 24th at 7.30 Eastern on TNT, followed by the Suns and Warriors um, at 10 Eastern on TNT. And then tomorrow, the Mavs, will play the Spurs on Wednesday at 9.30 Eastern, 8.30 Central on ESPN. That game will not be on Valley Sports Air, so you will not see it on Valley Sports Southwest if you are in this market, which means everyone in the country will be watching that ESPN broadcast. But for those of you in local markets, um, the Thunder um, will play the Chicago Bulls Wednesday, October 25th at 7 p.m. Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma. At the same time, the Pelicans um, will play the Memphis Grizzlies Wednesday at 7 Central on Valley Sports New Orleans. So as the season goes along, support your local broadcasters. Um, try to watch as many games as you can. Um, and I will be lock and step with the Mavs, the Pelicans, and the Thunder as the season goes along. And so we'll talk about those three teams. And as more teams start to create their storylines and we start getting more into a playoff push, We'll expand that out even more. Uh, but this is how things are going to go. So enjoy this one, and I'll see you in the next one. This is Australia Johannes signing off.